Thanks, guys. That was that was us. Thanks, guys. That was that was us. We have a tech issue this morning, and that is we've gone rather low tech on our parental notification system. <laughs> so if somebody walks up there and writes a number on the board, you should check your ID, see if that's your child. Uh, if that breaks down, we're going to go to smoke signals. But that's kind of <laughs> where we are this morning uh, with all this kind of stuff. We are. We are this year thinking together as a church family about the three great loves that are to shape every follower of Christ that we are to be devoted to. A wholehearted love for God, a love for his people, the church, and a love for our neighbors. And that's what we're focusing on this season is love for neighbors. Today we're beginning a short series that looks at, particularly looks at how Jesus did that. And what I'd like to to do today is share with you a message that I shared with our students at Creed Camp earlier this summer. And so if you are a student that was at Creed, if you're a Creedite, um, then this should be a good review for you. Hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you and you know how to pray for the church as this message unfolds because you know what's coming. And uh, parents, I hope this is an encouragement to you, the level of instruction that our kids get at this camp. Um, we don't dumb it down for these kids, and they, they respond beautifully to the teaching of, of the word there at the camp. But I, I hope it'll be an encouragement and a challenge to us all. It is, we're going to look at one of the most detailed and delightful encounters that someone has with Jesus in the entire New Testament. I, I love this story, but um, before we got that, I, I know that there's something we need to deal with. You want to know what's up with the rock, right? Why to get the rock? And um, partly due to the lack of tech, and partly because I did this, I gave this talk to students. There's going to be a little bit more interaction amongst you. You're going to actually have to talk to the person sitting next to you. So you can start by turning to your neighbor and just asking this one question, one question, one question only. What's up with the rock? Okay. So would you do that, please? All right. Very good. Now you need to know, all right, one question, one question only. Come on now, you can chit-chat later. You know that I, I, I have a whole bag of them here. And the reality of it is, so do you. You have, a, you have a sack full, a burlap sack. You probably aren't aware of it. You may not have been told about it. Could be you don't remember it, but you have one. And... Author Max Lucado describes it in a way that's helpful when he says it's an itchy, scratchy, burlap sack. You needed the sack so you could carry the stones. Rocks, boulders, pebbles, all sizes, all shapes, all unwanted. You didn't request them, you didn't seek them, but there they are. Don't remember? Some were rocks of rejection. You were given one the time you didn't pass the tryout. It wasn't for lack of effort. Heaven only knows how much you practiced. You thought you were good enough for the team, but the coach didn't, or the instructor didn't, and you thought you were good enough, but they said you weren't. They and how many others? You don't have to live long before you get a collection of stones. Make a poor grade. Make a bad choice. Make a mess. Get called a few names. Get mocked. Get abused. And so the sack gets heavy. Heavy with stones, stones of rejection, stones we don't deserve. Along with a few, we do. More than a few, honestly. Look into the burlap sack and you see that not all the stones are from rejections. There's a second type of stone. 
That's the stone of regret. Regret for the time you lost your temper. Regret for the day you lost control. Regret for the moment you lost your reputation. Regret for the words that you lost your friend, that lost you your friend. Regret for that time you should have said no. One stone after another, one guilty stone after another. You take the sack to school or to the office and you resolve to work so hard that you'll forget about the sack. So you work hard, you stay busy, and people are impressed. But when it's time to go, there's the sack waiting to be carried out. So you drag it into therapy and you sit on the couch with your sack at your feet and you spill all your stones on the floor and you name them one by one and the therapist listens and she empathizes and some helpful counsel is given but when the time is up you're obliged to gather up the rocks, put them back in the sack and take it with you. The result? A person slugging his way through life weighed down by the past. I don't know if you've noticed but it's hard to be carrying when you're carrying a burlap sack. It's hard to be forgiving when you still feel guilty. And the tragic part of the burlap sack story is we tend to throw our stones at those we love most. Anger, indifference, sometimes even running away. There has to be a better way. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to try to answer this question. What can we do about our rocks? Okay. And so... To do that, we're going to look at this amazing encounter that Jesus had with a woman uh, at a well in John chapter 4. So if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 4, you'll definitely need them today. Uh, John chapter 4, and I'll lead us in prayer as you find your way there. So bow with me, please. Father, have, have mercy on us now by your Spirit and your Word. Bring truth to us that we get, that we can grasp, that we can delight in and live out. So, Father, we, we look to you and ask for the fullness of your spirit now so that we might have ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. John chapter 4, starting in verse 3, we find Jesus traveling... He says he left Judea, departed again for Galilee. So he's traveling from the south, pretty much due north. Um, and then, then it says he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Well, on the one hand, it's how you got there, right? Um, from the south uh, to the north, from Judea to Galilee, Samaria is right in, in between, pretty much. So it'd be like um, if you're going from Wake Forest to Henderson, you have to go through Franklinton. Okay? That's, just, that's where the GPS takes you. So there's a sense in which that's where the GPS took Jesus, right, through, through Samaria. Um, but I can't help but wonder if there was another reason he had to go through Samaria. And I think we're about to meet her. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So that, that translates in, into about noon. Jesus is wearied from his travels. So let's just pause and think about that. The creator and sustainer 
of the world was tired after walking 20 miles. One writer says, the word became flesh and became real human flesh that gets tired and gropes for places to sit like other tired human beings. Max Lucado encourages us. He says, it's much easier to keep this kind of humanity out of Jesus. He says, we want to clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There is something about keeping him divine that keeps Jesus distant, packaged, predictable. He says, but don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. This is the first insight we have about who Jesus is in this passage. I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and tell them Jesus was human. All right, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. In verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And John's giving us all these little details so that we don't miss things that are significant to the telling of this story. Um, a woman all alone, drawing water at midday in the blazing heat of the Middle East. And this is a little bit odd. Typically, as I understand it, the women would come together in the cool of the morning or perhaps, perhaps as evening comes. Uh, guys, you, you know this is how women work, right? They even go to the bathroom together, right? Uh, but this woman comes alone during the heat of the day. Why? Why would she do that? Perhaps one reason as we're going to see as the story unfolds, was that she had a really big bag of rocks that she carried. She had a past that had spilled out in a very public way, much more public than, I wished, than I'm sure she wished it would have. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew every stone in her sack. If you'll skip ahead in the story, drop down just a few verses to verse 16, in our story, Jesus speaks to this woman and says, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. How did he know that? How did he know the dark secrets of a woman's past he just met for the first time at a well in a little village in Samaria. Well, let's just say it helps to be God, okay? And this is one of the other things that we learn about Jesus in this story. Not only is he human, he's also God. So turn to your neighbor and tell him Jesus was God. All right, so in this story, we see so far that Jesus is a man like us. He gets tired after long journeys, and yet he is God. He is not like us. He knows the secret details 
of our pasts. He knows about the rocks in our bags. Jesus is, as we confess as Christians, fully God and fully man. So turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Okay? All right? And as a result of all that, Jesus knows. Jesus knows about her rocks the same way he knows about yours and he knows about mine. He knew her past. And he knows ours too. But watch how he treats her in light of that. Okay? Bear in mind that Jesus knows her. He knows her past. He knows her secrets. And he says to her in verse 7, a woman came from Samaria to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So again, seemingly insignificant, but even, even though Jesus knows who this woman is and what her past is like, he engages her in very, as we'll see, very personal conversation. And somehow, I doubt it was very often that way in her little hometown. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, and the way small towns work is um, everybody knows your business, right? It's just how it works. Uh, you couldn't get away with anything in my little town. If you tried, everybody seemed to find out. And uh, when I was growing up, there was a, uh, a lady who lived on the other side of town, and she was purportedly a woman of ill repute. Everyone knew where her house was. Everybody knew. Um, that's been going on in small towns like the one in our story since small towns have been in existence. There's not many secrets. Not big ones. Not for very long anyway. And I think that's probably why she was coming to the well alone. They knew her business. They knew her past. And likely they shunned her for it. So Jesus, even though he knows her past more fully than they did, he does not shun her. He engages her in deliberate and pretty personal conversation. Jesus reaches out to her when no one else will, even though he knows. Even though he has to smash through the barriers, barriers of his day's prejudice. Okay? Jesus talks with outcasts. And, and we should too. We should too. Look at verse 8. She, Jesus is at the well, alone with this woman, uh, because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Okay? Now notice, just as an aside, Jesus does not do miraculous lunches just for convenience, right? Um, just to save his disciples a trip to the store. He, you know, they don't say, hey, Jesus, we're out of bread. He doesn't say, hey, no problem, here's some bread. That's not how Jesus' miracles worked or why. His miracles serve bigger purposes than that. So there they go into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, there's no love lost, evidently, between these two groups of people. 
They had parted uh, long before in history for a variety of reasons. And Samaritans, they, though they worshipped Yahweh, the same God as the Jews, they had other gods they worshipped too. They worshipped in different places. Um, and the Jews viewed them as half-breeds and heretics. They wouldn't even share a meal with them. They wouldn't share a plate or a cup with a Samaritan. When the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8, just a few pages over, they really wanted to insult Jesus. They say, were we not right to call you a Samaritan and say you have a demon? Okay. That was derogatory speech. Now, you take that view of Samaritans that many Jews held, and you bump that up against uh, what may have been a prevailingly derogatory view of women in the day, uh, where one rabbi said, that, said this, he said, to talk to a woman was at best a waste of time, or at worst, a diversion from studying God's law, and potentially a great evil that could lead them to hell. Okay? That's what one rabbi's opinion was of talking to women. It's been said that no one would hold a conversation with a woman on the street, not even his own wife, and certainly not with any other woman, because people talk. Now, I know some of you single guys have adopted this verse as your approach, this first century approach to talking to women as your personal approach to women. Okay? Not my counsel to you. You should talk to women. You should talk to girls, single guys. And for those of you who are married, you should definitely talk to your wife in public. Okay? It is highly, highly recommended. But it was different in Jesus' day. Okay? So she's a Samaritan, strike one. She's a woman, strike two. And she's a woman who'd been married five times and now was sleeping with someone who was not her husband. That's strike three in anybody's game except Jesus. He knew all this, and yet he reached out and talked to her. And I cannot help but wonder if she was the reason that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Look at verse 10. Jesus replied to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? So it's a fascinating turn to the conversation. It starts about water. Jesus kind of makes a veiled offer of something greater called living water. And she doubts him. She doubts his ability to do that. He doesn't even have a bucket. How's he going to get water out of this deep well? And who does he think he is? Does he think he's greater than the Old Testament saint Jacob who dug the well? She goes, I don't think so. And Jesus says, oh, yes, I am. I am greater than Jacob. Watch what he says. Jesus says to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus has made a greater offer of living water 
that leads to eternal life, that satisfies forever. He not just satisfies a physical thirst. He's not saying, all right, you have some Gatorade, right? This is about a soul thirst that can be satisfied by this water deep down in here. She doesn't really get it, and she, she seems to almost admit that, but whatever it is that he's offering sure sounds good to her, even if it means that she just doesn't have to keep coming back alone to this well in the noonday heat. And so Jesus is telling her, in effect, yes, I am greater than Jacob. In fact, Jesus could say, I made Jacob. Right? My well is greater than his well. My water satisfies in a way that his cannot. So we're not dealing here with just another great Bible character. This is God's one and only son. God in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. Say that with me. Fully God and fully man. So in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so Jesus presses her with a very personal and potentially embarrassing question. Why would Jesus do that to someone that he does not know? Why would he embarrass her like that? And I don't think his point at all is to embarrass her, but it is to expose her need for the water that he is offering. Because until you admit your great soul thirst for water that quenches a thirsty soul, you'll never take that life-giving drink. And Jesus knows her past, just like he knows my past, and he knows your past, it's all an open book to him. He knows every single rock in the sack. Every single one. And still, we see here, he still loves. He still loves us. He still loves her enough to offer to satisfy her deepest longings and her greatest need. Okay. And Jesus, you know, today Jesus is making that same offer to you. And he wants to make it through you to your thirsty neighbors. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, which is very insightful on her part. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So we have a, another turn in our conversation. Um, it's a conversation about water and who she's sleeping with, and then it's about worship. Um, and she changes the subject, but 
I mean, you have to give her credit. Wouldn't you change the subject? If you met a guy down at the coffee shop, and all of a sudden he starts telling you all your dark secrets from your past. Yeah, you'd change the subject pretty fast, too, if that happened, I'm sure. And this happens sometimes in conversations with people when we start to talk about personal things, about spiritual things. The conversation changes, and they ask things like, but what about the Crusades, and what about the hypocrites in the church, and what about the latest Christian scandal, and the like. Um, and sometimes they're just deflecting, they're just changing the subject, right? But sometimes those are earnest, real questions that matter, and Jesus honors her question as earnest. And he says, essentially, when she asks if you ought to worship where the Samaritans worship or where the Jews do, he essentially says that the place issue is a non-issue. It's not where but how we worship, that the Father is seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's a rich expression. It's not easily narrowed down. It could refer to with passion, with spirit-given passion and truth according to the word, or it could be a reference to the Spirit of God Himself and Jesus who is the truth. So that if we think about it that way, the Father is seeking worshipers through the Spirit and the Son. The whole Trinity is involved in the, in the pursuit of worshipers. And I think this is why Jesus had to pass through Samaria to reach out to this Samaritan woman with a big bag of rocks in her past to help her be free to know and love and worship God as Father. The Father was seeking her through the Son by the Spirit. Well, in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, this is, now this is a shocker because if you've read Jesus' biographies, you know that early on, he's veiling his identity. He's keeping it kind of secret, especially to the religious leaders. He's not disclosing. And here he is revealing himself to her, this Samaritan woman with a past. Jesus reveals himself to people that we would not expect him to. He surprises us that way. So in verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Okay, they're shocked by this for reasons we've already talked about. They come back from town, they've been in at Sonic getting lunch, and they come back and they find Jesus alone talking to a Samaritan woman. But no one dared ask him the questions they were thinking, what are you doing with him and what are you doing talking with her? They go through their minds, but they dare not ask, after all, it's Jesus, and they're intimidated, I think. So the woman left her water jar, verse 28, and went away into town and said to the people, she drops her water jar, leaves it there, I guess. She, did she leave it for Jesus as he requested, or was she just in such a hurry, or had she discovered a water that matters more? 
living water that cleanses your past and empties your bag of rocks so you can be free of guilt and shame forever. Free to be a worshiper in spirit and truth. And when she runs back into town, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so they went out of town and were coming to him. And the townspeople are curious by, about this. And I imagine there's at least a handful of men who are really curious about this, wondering, did they tell you everything that you did? And her words are so simple. She just says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She just shares that she had an encounter with Jesus, and then she asks them, who do you think he is? And we can do this. You don't have to have a PhD in apologetics to do this. We can say, hey, I was in church on Sunday, and the pastor was talking about Jesus and said that he was fully God and fully man. Who do you think Jesus is? We can all ask a question like that and then just listen well and pray and see what God does. I'm going to largely skip the next section due to time this morning, verses 31 and 38, where Jesus is focusing in on his disciples because we're going to stay focused on, on this woman. But there is one thing Jesus says that I want to make sure we don't miss, and that's in verse 35. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says, Do you, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. See, Jesus is saying, I think there are a lot of people like this woman who are far from God, outcasts. We, we might call them in our world the unlikelies, who, are, who we would say are unlikely to believe in Jesus. And yet, they are more ready than we think they are. They're at your schools, they're where you work, they're loners or troublemakers or rebels or outcasts. Um, they're the last people we think would be interested in Jesus. Ru Russell Moore recently wrote this provocative little paragraph. He says, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards, one of our great theologians of the past, might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper sticker. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon, another great preacher of the past, might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now. Just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. <laughs> but the, he writes, the Spirit of God can turn all that around and seems to delight to do so. You know any unlikelies? People in your world that you just think, I don't think, it's not very likely they'd be, it's really unlikely they'd be interested in God. Don't say no for them. People are more ready for Jesus than you think, and Jesus loves to work in the lives of unlikely three-strike people like this Samaritan woman, and the unlikelies that you know, the unlikelies that we were. 
those of us who know Jesus. And this morning, you may feel like one of those unlikely. Watch with me what happens next. Watch what happens when someone recognizes that Jesus is both human and divine, that he offers real soul satisfaction deep down in here, and that he is the Christ who can take our bag of rocks and free us from our sins. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony, where she simply said, he told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And so now, because of her encounter with Jesus, her whole relationship to the town changes, right? Now she goes back to town and engages the very people that she likely had been so isolated from. And where she was once trapped in destructive relationships, now she brings life and hope to those same relationships. She goes to those who, who likely wronged her or abandoned her or turned her out, and she shares her hope with those very people in her town. And she connects them to the bearer of living water, someone greater than Jacob, the one who can carry their sinful stones away. As a result, the whole town has changed. People who have never heard the story of Jesus before have now heard, and many have believed. And in their words, they believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's, that's the townspeople's assessment. And here, Jesus is messing with his disciples, his Jewish disciples, right? First, he drags them through Samaria instead of letting them go around it. And then they catch him talking to a Samaritan woman alone, a woman with a past. And now he says, guys... We're going to stay two days in the Samaritan town and enjoy these people's hospitality. Um, and this is why we are committed as we follow Jesus to take the gospel to people who are far from God. People who are yet to hear. Jesus says the fields are white out there. There are a lot more people like this woman, like the people in her town who are ready to believe all over the world, and He is their Savior too. He's the Savior of the world. Okay. A people who've never heard of Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus who've not yet heard. You know, there was a, a Christian in the fourth century, the 300s. His name was Ephraim the Syrian. And he summarizes this encounter really beautifully. This is what he says. He says, Jesus came to the well as a hunter. He threw a grain before one pigeon that he might capture the whole flock. And at the beginning of the conversation, he did not make himself known to her. So first she caught sight merely of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet. And last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. 
She showed her dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet, and she adored the Christ. I, I love this story because of who it shows Jesus to be and the way he lovingly deals with this woman. History would later name her Fotina um, or Svetlana. Maybe you've heard it that way. It means light because she bore the light of Christ to her village. Um, but we, we see Jesus. He reveals himself in this one story to be fully God and fully man. He's someone who knows about our biggest rocks from our past and still wants to know us, wants to talk with us, wants us to become worshipers of the Father. He's a He's someone of insight and compassion and patience and amazing grace. He's someone who loves the unlikelies and someone who truly is the Savior of the world. I love this story too because it's easy to find your place in it. We're, we're like the woman. And that's why I, I gave you all a rock when you came into the room. It represents our regrets, our past, what the Bible calls our sins, where we have fallen far short of our hopes and of God's standards. All of us have fallen short. All of us have a bag full of rocks. And you really have only two choices as to what you're going to do with this. You can bear it yourself or Jesus can. And those are your choices. And if, if we choose to carry our bag of rocks ourselves, then we will, those rocks will slowly misshape our lives and bend us away from God and ultimately ruin our lives for all eternity, the Bible teaches us. But the very best of news is that Jesus came to bear the burden of our sin for us. Peter said beautifully, he himself, he's writing about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore them for us. And Jesus has come to take the burden of your sins and in the greatest act of love, bear that burden himself on the cross. That's why Jesus died on the, on the cross, to bear the burden of your sins and mine, to take our bag of rocks so that we don't have to bear it anymore. So this morning, will you let him Take yours. And so instead of turning to your neighbor, let me encourage you this morning, turn to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, by your life and death and resurrection, take my sins away. And let me encourage you, we, we want to do something representative at the close of our service. Um, you can... During our response time, the worship team is going to come and lead us in joyous worship of Christ. You can bring this rock to this communion table that points us to the cross. We, we associate this table with the cross. We come to this table in remembrance of the cross. And you can take this rock that represents your sin and you can place it on this table that represents Christ's work on your behalf as an expression that you believe, that you trust in Christ. Um, now, most of us in this room, many of us anyway, have already done this. 
And yet it's funny how we go back to our bag of rocks and we pick them up and we dust them off and we carry them around in our pockets and we treasure them and we hope in our sins once again. And I want you to know this morning that this is a beautiful opportunity from Jesus to let go of that again and turn your heart's desire back towards Christ. And so you too, if you found yourself picking up those kind of sins, you may want to bring it forward and just lay it down again as a symbol of turning your heart back towards Christ and confessing and forsaking your sins. You, you may want to come on behalf of someone else. As I talked about unlikelies this morning, you thought of somebody at work or in your class or in your family who's far from God. Or maybe God's pressing your heart for a people that live some way far place away from here in China or India or somewhere like that. And you want to bring a rock that's basically your yes, your hope that God would use you so that one day um, Jesus would become their sin bearer too. And so there's a variety of reasons that you could come to the table in response to the word this morning and leave this stone there symbolically. But I want to make sure you know that there's no power in the stone. Okay? These are dollar store rocks. <laughs> you, you, you bring it up to this table and you put it on here and it means absolutely nothing. Okay? It means nothing. And you, you don't have to participate in that. Don't feel like you do. But what it represents means everything. That there is one who loves you so much that he would bear all of your sins on, on the cross for you so that you would never have to bear them again. And so let me pray for us and then we'll rise and worship and if if one of those kinds of responses fits what God's doing in your heart today, feel free to come. You can see the first service uh, just full of sinners. And uh, <laughs> they, but responsive, obedient sinners, okay? And so they came and many of them took advantage of this. So uh, bow with me in prayer if you would, please. What kind of God? forgives what, what I have done. Knows it fully. Wounded by it personally. And would make provision to wash it all away. That's our Father. And Father, we, we bow our heads and our, our lives before you and we treasure it more than we treasure the rock that represents the sin that we hold in our hands. Um, and we are so glad that Christ is our sin bearer, that he went to the tree, not for his sins, but for ours. And so I pray for those who've never made that connection before, but your spirit is, is pressing them now to say yes to Christ. Father, help them say yes. May this little symbol be their yes today. And for those of us who in one of the great acts of folly in the world have, have come to this table and picked our stone back up, Father, forgive us and 
Help us live free as we are free today as we place it here. And uh, Lord, may many, many here go back to our villages and speak of the one who is the Christ to them as well. We ask all this in his name. Amen. If you'll rise, let's respond in worship and feel free to come as the Lord leads you.